Hello and welcome to another episode of the University Observer News Podcast. Um, you're here with me, your host, uh, Heather Reynolds, Chief of News and Current Events Podcasting. I'm joined this week by Dylan O'Neill, who's a former deputy editor at the University Observer and a recent graduate from the master's program journalism in DCU. His writings can be found um, at Sand News, Found Magazine and Buzz.ie as well as um, his research can be found at Last Word with Matt Cooper at Today FM, as well as Grace Donovan, this year's Law and Politics Editor at the University Observer. The writers can be found there, as well as on her newsletter, which can be subscribed to at gracedonovan.substack.com and stan.ie, who is final year Law and Politics student here at ECD. So we're going to jump right into it with our first kind of short story of the week, which is UCD has been fined 70,000 euro for GDPR breaches between the times of August 2018 and January 2019, um, leading to a mass leak of students' login information. UCD is currently in the process of aligning itself with the advice and guidelines given by the Data Protection Commission, some of which is completed and some of which is still in progress. Yeah, this story was wild when I read it because ECD have not had the best track record with keeping up with GDPR and this story seems to be the latest in a line of issues that they've had. I remember reading an article years ago about um, there was an unlocked room in the student centre that had, um, I think it was the College Tribune, that had an article on something similar related to GDPR and seeing them get fined 70,000 euro, I'm not at all surprised. Um, yeah, so that article was run last year by uh, Connor Kaplis headed up that story for the College Tribune last year. There was a storage room on the top floor of the student centre, which was really accessible if you went this one specific way. Um, and there was unlocked filing cabinets within that had students' personal details, including bank information, back to about 2014, I believe. I don't think anything has come of that as of yet in terms of GDPR. I believe they were reported to the Data Protection Commission for that as well. Um, this predates that by about two years. So, yeah, it's just another, another instance in a long line of UCD not being the best at keeping students information as safe as it can be yeah it seems crazy that um that this could happen as well as like other breaches previously also the fact that they um didn't like notify anyone for 13 days it said that in the I think it was the independent article was it um which was kind of shocking like they're kind of digging themselves into a hole regarding it yeah, and it was, um, so UCD did report this to the Data Protection Commission themselves once they discovered the breach, but I do believe it was brought to their attention from students who discovered their information on the website, Have I Been Pwned, which, not the best look. Yeah, it seems like they don't really have much of a regard for um, protecting this information. Like, it just seems very, like, a very lackadaisical attitude towards it. Yeah, um, as well as this, um, I believe what actually led them to bring it to the Data Protection Commission was that accounts had been breached by unauthorized third parties to send out spam emails. And that seems to be the deciding factor in them going to the Data Protection Commission on it. Yeah, I think the commission said that um, where the issue was, was that UCD had failed to, or they had kept information, personal data, 
on an email service for longer than what was necessary for the purpose of keeping that data? I believe that was, that was one of seven breaches they were found um, to have engaged in. There were seven breaches in total that they have that they've been fined on. Yeah, it just makes you wonder, like, um, what else is there? I'd assume there are probably other areas where data is being breached that just haven't been identified yet. Or again, like, I was unaware of this data breach that happened during a point in time in which I was in UCD. Like, I've been a UCD student since um, September 2016. I was mm-hmm. unaware this data breach had occurred until the article started to come in about this fine. And so you wonder if there is other things currently ongoing that the students have not been made aware of. I suppose it serves as a cautionary tale for places like ULM and Newth, who I think are also, I don't know if they have um, investigations ongoing by the Data Commission or if that there have been stories from both UL and Manuth on GDPR breaches. But certainly, I know from reading that myself, because as soon as I read it, I went on to have I been pawned and checked all my emails to see if um, anything had been breached. And thankfully, nothing had. I'm safe. So, yeah, I checked mine too. Well, I'm okay for now. Yes. And I do believe that based on the information provided in the independent study article that there is currently ongoing investigations into Maynooth and UL um, for breaches happening in a similar time period. So I suppose it'll, it's wait and, we'll wait and see whether they get fined the same amount or less or more. Um, I suppose to see just how egregious this breach was on UCB's behalf in the grand scheme of things. And moving on, we will move on to our next story. Uh, Trinity is to elect its first female provost. This vote isn't happening for another couple of months, but the applicants have been shortlisted um, to the point where it is only three women uh, remaining in line for the role, uh, which is Professor Linda Hogan, uh, Professor of Ecumenics in UCD and former former Vice Provost, um, Dr. Linda Doyle, an Engineering and Arts Professor and former Dean of Research, as well as Professor Jane uh, Allmeyer, a historian and the first vice president for global relations in Trinity. For those who are unaware, a provost uh, in Trinity is similar to the role Deeks plays in UCD, basically a head of the university. Um, it runs on a 10-year term. The last provost was elected in 2011. And I do believe that Professor Olemeyer was also an applicant in the running um, in that last election in 2011. Well, I think it's great that it's three women a nice change because obviously there aren't a lot of women um, involved in academia especially at that level which is not like through no fault of their own and like UCD we have never had a female president so I think it's setting a good um, example for other universities to follow in the next few years. If I could just chime in here and be devil's advocate for a second. (laughs) (laughs) Go ahead Dylan. No I I really don't want to I just as the only man here (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> seems like a lot of reverse sexism in my opinion <laughs> um, well considering this will be the first time they have a female provost since I believe 1548 um, I, think, I think it's a long <laughs> time coming um, yeah no I, I say all that without an ounce of sincerity um, I know that this is the final stage so that we can expect a decision relatively soon 
because there's like three stages to picking the new provost and the final one began was it last friday the 5th february i think mm -hmm. but um i think it's interesting that you have the vice provost a uh, professor Oh, yeah, sorry. So Professor Linda Hogan, who's the vice provost up for the job, and also um, Professor Allmeyer, who was the only female candidate to be considered back in 2011 when the current provost, um, Patrick Prendergast, was elected, nominated, hired. So you have like very strong contenders who know the role within their own rights being considered for the position, which I think is good. Um, yeah, it does really kind of highlight the fact that these women are here based on their own credentials and achievements more so than Trinity feeling like it has a kind of role to fill in electing a female provost because it, it's the time or of something similar. Yeah, 100%. They are all um, very qualified, which is a good thing. Um, and it just shows that there are um, a lot of very qualified women who are well able for these roles. So we should be putting them forward for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it all stems from the when Mary Mitchell O'Connor was senator, um, or current mm. senator. But back in two thousand eighteen, I think it was, um, she presented findings in a survey that found that fifty percent of all third level positions were occupied by women, but only twenty five percent of professor jobs were occupied by women. So that there was a real big disparity between, you know, women. Um, in third level and then women in the higher roles of third level and mm. I think that was one of the reasons behind her initiative to have 45 women only senior academic posts and that Trinity higher Trinity are on the verge of hiring the first female provost is sort of an extension of that or like a natural I don't want to say conclusion because hopefully this isn't a conclusion on women getting higher roles in um, higher education but it definitely does seem to be a progression from that um, the kind of steps made by Mary Mitchell O'Connor uh, while she was in that position. I think it will be interesting to keep an eye on how women progress in Trinity post the election of this new provost. Will there be more women promoted to professorhoods? Will there kind of be a gap bridged in this gender um, divide, which it could be in such a long-standing institution as Trinity? There there is kind of assumptions and preconceptions made based on their history and the amount of time that they've been in existence of certain things to be met. And it'll be interesting to see what changes could possibly be made with a woman heading the charge, um, if there will be any made. Nice little factoid about Professor Linda Hogan though, that I found while researching this is that um, she was put forward to be a female cardinal, I believe. Um, back in the early 2010s, when it was it was um, believed that the Pope at the time was looking to elect female cardinals. But yeah, she was one of the women put forward. So yeah, seems like she's a woman just with a bit of get up and go. Through. I mean, given um, her role as Professor of Ecumenics, it's not a far stretch to see why. And from there, we'll move on to our final brief story of today, um, which is that the Helix Theatre in DCU is going to become a vaccination center for over 70s. Um, this will be a mass vaccination center for people over 70, particularly over 85, who cannot receive uh, vaccinations in their GP practice. Uh, they'll be seeing in and around 1600 patients before the, first, the end of the first week in March is when 
that first round of vaccinations for over 85s is due to finish. And when the first round of vaccinations for the over 70s is due to commence. Yeah, I think it's a good idea definitely to utilize the space when obviously it isn't being used for anything else. Um, so it's a good step forward. I know in the article it said they're hoping to do similar centers in Galway and Cork. But you think that they could um, get a bit of a move on with that? Like if they can set the helix up, you'd assume they could probably set it up in a few um, other kind of regional centers outside of Dublin as well. Obviously not my area of expertise, but at least it's a step in the right direction. Yeah, so I think what's important to highlight here is the reason that the helix is being used um, because it's to accommodate a lot of smaller GPs that don't have the numbers of people over the age of 85 um, to warrant them getting uh, the either the Pfizer, BioNTech or Moderna vaccines delivered directly to them. So there is a small amount of travel involved for you know older people mm. to get the vaccine. Um, and I think that's what we can see rolled out across in Galway and Cork and then hopefully other cities because I know there are like it is hard to travel and to arrange the travel if you are an elderly person living on your own you have to consider who is in your bubble and who can bring you to get vaccinated to travel such a long way if you can't drive by yourself and then there's like aftercare treatment to consider like after you get the vaccine sort of um, I think you have to wait around 15 minutes just to let the doctor or healthcare professional have a look at you to make sure you're okay and that's sort of what needs to be brought out I, I would like to see more centers because there are what was it um, I had a statistic down here somewhere so there are around 900 practices in Ireland that have over 200 patients that are over the age of 75 so they would qualify for getting the vaccine directly to them but in the grand scheme of what five point something million people in Ireland there needs to be a lot more centres um, organised by the HSC to get older people first as well as uh, frontline healthcare professionals and people in residential homes as well vaccinated and prioritised. Yeah, and I think just um, on the point Grace made about uh, these centres not being rolled out yet outside of Dublin, I do believe that that's because um, the Helix is being used as kind of a test case to see if it's feasible to do it on this scale um, and have people be able to come in to receive vaccine. They just want to make sure that it's feasible in a high population area before moving it to lower population areas, I believe. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense. Hopefully it will run smoothly anyway. I think the HSE have estimated that about 12,000 people over the age of 85 are going to get the vaccine next week. Um, and they're getting it alongside 25,000 frontline healthcare workers and then 42,500 people living in residential care homes. So they're taking on quite a significant number as a test case, which I think is quite good, especially that it's all members of vulnerable groups to the vaccine. Yeah, and so there, there is around, I believe, 70,000 people over the age of 85 living in Ireland currently. Um, so that is, that's the group that they are planning to have the first round of vaccinations completed for by the first, the end of the first week of March. 
and then the next group is the over 70s which brings it up to I believe about 400,000 um, between 400 and 500,000 which is a big step up and so the rolling out of these centers I think would be a massive help in distributing the vaccine on a more timely scale uh, when they roll it out to these much larger groups um, that are still vulnerable populations. I suppose from there we're going to move on to our first uh, in-depth story which uh, still deals with the um, COVID-19 pandemic um, for, a much, for a much much younger population. Um, we're going to be looking at the uh, recent to do about the leaving certificate exams which for second year in a row will be in the middle of uh, of the pandemic. So there's been discussions between the ASTI and Department of Education this week regarding the continued use of assessed grades uh, leading to the ASTI withdrawing from uh, discussions on Thursday night. Now they have not formally rejoined discussions on this, uh, but they did have a constructive discussion with Norma Foley on Friday afternoon. Uh, that's Friday the 12th of uh, February 2021. And uh, this withdrawal from discussions based on the belief by the ASTI that not enough work was being put into properly assessed grades to reduce chances of grades, grade inflation, which the Union of Students Ireland is greatly worried about happening again this year with about 80,000 students applying into the CAO this year. The welfare officer for the USI was on the News at Nine last night discussing this uh, worry about grade inflation. However, the government has said that they are prepared to move forward uh, in talks without ASTI support if need be, with uh, a renewed on formally assessing grades this year and running forward on the same scheme as last year, which was heavily criticized at the time for both inflation and deflation of grades on both ends of the scale. About the talks, I got a notification, the Irish Times this morning said the ASTI, the ASTI, I should say, they said that they will resume the talks this week. But they said that was because Norma Foley has made a, quote, unequivocal commitment to hold a traditional Leaving Cert this year, which I feel like is something she shouldn't be unequivocally committing to at the moment. So how long that? I feel like this is an ever-changing situation. So like by the end of the week, they could be able to said, you know, actually, well, I know she's saying it, but I don't think you can unequivocally commit to holding a traditional leaving cert at the moment. Like, I just feel like all that's going to happen is she'll say, okay, well, I know she's planning on running a two, like a dual system at the moment where they would run a leaving cert, but they would also have, I think, an option of calculated grades. I don't think they've really defined what the alternative would be, but there'll be an alternative option. But I feel like all that will happen is in April or May, they'll turn around and be like, well, we really can't hold any kind of leaving well I don't know but it could happen that they can't hold in-person exams and then it's just pushing the situation further out and what are they what's going to happen then I feel like it's going to be a bit of back and forth for a while at least between the unions and the department yeah I think you're right Grace um from what I've read that they could very much say that oh we're committing now and then a couple of weeks down the line after 
um, the government decides to yet again extend the lockdown, we can be, they can just say, well, at the time, the figures that we projected were substantially lower um, than they are in reality. And for therefore, we either can't have the leaving cert in the traditional summer period, or we'll have to postpone it to November and hold in-person exams then, um, or offer uh, calculated grades like we did last year. Um, so I think a lot of the confusion is what's the ratio for students on calculated grades versus uh, sitting assessments? And will there be an option for them? Because I know my sister is currently in her leaving cert year and um, she, she really just wants the department to make a decision and to stick to it because um, like she, she has been working as if the leaving cert is happening on the 4th of June um, and she has been preparing for that. Um, but equally, if she got her predicted grades, the way she calculated them, she would get her first choice. And so she's quite happy with that. But right now she just really wants them to make a decision so she knows what to expect. And I think a lot of people um, are in the same boat. I do believe that is the same situation as as last year with um, with students really just wanting any kind of security of decision that you know it wouldn't be rolled back on if figures changed or if they ended up not being able to get a um, reliable code in time in place uh, by that by that time that there was just a formal decision made at the earliest possible stage to alleviate the anxiety of not knowing. Yeah, um, I think. Sorry, I think it's shocking that they like haven't a plan in principle made by this stage. I don't I think there's no real excuse. Like I know they can say, oh, we will hold the exams, but that should, in my opinion, always be a backup option. Like they need to have a plan for what they will do if they can't hold the exams. And I just think it's like it's February and they seem to just not have a plan at all. Um, which is like they've had months, you know, they really should have learned the lesson from last year, and it just seems like nothing has been learned in the past year. Yeah, and the comments coming from government sources really don't inspire any faith that they have a plan. Like Simon Harris said that uh, the ASTI withdrawing was beyond unhelpful, even though the ASTI said, like they had reasons that the discussions weren't going anywhere, that um, Education Minister Foley wanted to get the input of all stakeholders involved, which, is a vague statement because to me, all stakeholders involved would include every student sitting there leaving cert who wants to apply for the CAO. So there's just, there's a lot of vague language coming from the government on this and no concrete steps that they have in place or that they seem to be agreeing to put in place once they have an announcement ready to go. Yeah, definitely. And I feel like, Obviously, there is tension between the government and the unions, and I know the ASDI aren't a fan of like continuous assessment. They are quite fond of holding traditional leaving cert exams, but I do think like it's a bit easy for the government to say, "Well, the unions won't cooperate, and that's the problem, and that's why we can't get anywhere with this." But I agree; I don't think that they have a concrete plan. And so, like, I don't think the fault lies totally with the unions. I think that the fault is also with the government. And actually, with the mention of Minister Harris, I would just want to bring into 
the conversation, a comment made by Mr. Harris earlier in the week where he has said that 80% of students sitting their leaving cert this year will receive one of their top three choices. Uh, he is um, attempting to ensure that will happen. And I think he believes that either 40 or 50% of students will receive their first choice, which is a big promise to make, a big assurance to make, um, considering we don't know how leaving cert will be around this year yet. Yeah, I think that's a bit of a weird thing to say. Like, in principle, I think it's a good thing. Like, it would be great if 80% of people did get their first, second or third choice. But it just seems like a bit of a off-the-wall statement. Like, it's, I don't know now the ins and outs of this, but, like, I do understand how the courses can kind of set the points, you know, by um, picking the numbers that are going to be in the course. But, like, is he coordinating with specific universities and stuff regarding this? Or, I don't know, I don't feel like that should be something that you're throwing around now at the moment when it, like you said, like there isn't even a plan for the exams. Yeah, I do believe he's making this assurance based on the kind of process that happened last year where additional places were added to courses to ensure as many people um, entered third level as possible. But at the same time, like it is kind of an unfeasible assurance to make in February of the year, in any case, like, CA applications haven't formally closed yet. They won't until um, June, I believe June, um, is the kind of the last time you can formally uh, change your CAO uh, options. It's been a very long time since I did that. Um, You're telling um, me it was 2014 when I did it. We had a different grading system. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was the last year of uh, before the H1s. Oh, I had um, the H1s. Oh God, I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose with um, with that discussion, we will move on to a topic that's just always kind of in the news these days. There was two articles around on it last issue with the University Observer, which is government leaks. Um, we had an article run by our deputy editor, Nathan George Young, and another by Grace, who is here with us today. So I will let her take the lead on the government leaks why are they happening why are they happening so frequently well I feel like it's a question that can't be answered <laughs> no um I feel like um I guess I don't think there is a universal explanation because I think you kind of need to look at them on a case-by-case basis um like I think they're occurring for different reasons and I also think that I guess like obviously we don't know is leaking information um, in most of these cases so dependent on like who you assume to be doing it you can kind of you could build a different narrative um obviously there was that incident with Leo Varadkar where he was quite obviously leaking the information um I feel like that kind of incident is purely a politician kind of you know doing favors and thinking that they're kind of above not above the law but more so I guess being quite blasé about the confidentiality of um, certain documents and I think that that probably does play a role I think perhaps there is kind of a relaxed attitude amongst some people um, regarding how the the confidentiality of documents and that they shouldn't be um, getting into the wrong hands and perhaps the mother and baby homes report which was leaked I feel like that could be another incident of something just getting passed to someone who shouldn't have had it and then 
passed on further then in other situations I feel like it probably is a strategy um the leaks regarding NetPet um I think they were probably strategy I think you could say it was a government strategy and they were perhaps testing the water if you looked at the one in October where there was that um leak that they were gonna NetPet recommended level five you could say perhaps it's the government testing the water, seeing what the public appetite for that is. I don't think that's the best strategy. Um, as Nathan pointed out in his piece, like it just means the public know what NEP had recommended. And then in a few months later, they can turn around and be like, well, NEP had recommended this. Why didn't you follow it? Um, if like this did the situation escalate as it did. But I don't think that the government necessarily think long term about this kind of thing. So I guess it's like, possibly a good short-term um, strategy and as well like the public are kind of relieved then I feel like at that stage it was, there was kind of a sense of relief when the government didn't um, enforce stricter measures and it's also a way for them to almost um, like assert their authority over NEPAD especially I feel like Leo Varadkar because um, he went on Claire Byrne then and was like you know we we know what we're doing we don't need to listen to them that kind of thing um, so I think it can be utilized in that way. But I do feel as well that, you know, you could say that it was someone from NAPAD who leaked that information and they were trying to pressure the government. So I think it's hard to, you can't say like, there's a lot of reasons why they could be happening, I guess. So it's hard to like um, make a definitive statement on it. Yeah, Grace, when I read your article, I immediately put on my House of Cards hat and I was like, okay, who benefits from each of these things being leaked case by case um so I think you're dead right that you know there are there have been strategic leaks from the government um I, I do think though in the case of last October with the uh Nefert recommending that we go to level five before we actually did go to level five lockdown that to me I I find it hard to believe that Leo Varadkar was the leak in that instance because from the events that happened afterwards with him being on Claire Byrne and Stephen Donnelly saying two very different things it completely undermines the confidence that people are going to have in the government if they can't get their story straight yeah like, I would have a controversial, a controversial opinion here that maybe Leo Varadkar wants to undermine the government so there would, this is a, maybe a bit of a conspiracy theory of mine. So that there would, the government would collapse and there'd be another election. No, see, I, I definitely thought that too. I can totally understand where you're coming from. That is, I think that's a popular conspiracy theory. Okay, that um, sounds a bit crazy there. <laughs> no, I, I have heard a lot of people saying similar things where like, not that they think necessarily that it's true, but that if it turned out to be the case, they wouldn't be surprised. Mm, yeah, exactly. yeah, like, he was mistakenly called Taoiseach a lot, a fair few times after that, after that particular leak. Yeah. But I think with that one, because Nefit is just an advisory board, I, I think it's more, more likely anyway, this is my running hypothesis on it, that it's more likely someone who sided with Nefit leaked that correspondence because Nefit saw that the reality of the situation is we need to get the case is under control and the best way to do that is to go to a level five lockdown even though days later Leo Radker was on the Claire Byrne show saying that a circuit breaker would just not work yeah no I think it could definitely be 
someone in NAPAD as well. Um, yeah, but one thing I suppose that can't really be like not not acknowledged is that the, these leaks seem to be happening an awful lot more frequently in the current government. Mm. Um, that they they just seem to be occurring at a much greater rate of frequency to the point where like general public just seem to be in acknowledgement of it. Whereas before it would mainly be people who really like politics or journalists who would be paying attention to leaks and the frequency of them. It feels like every other week the, the leak or something equivalent is trending on Twitter. So it has kind of come to a thought of like, is it genuinely happening more often or because there's less going on are people more aware of it happening? But it does genuinely feel like it's, it's a greater frequency of leaks. Yeah, I feel like it does feel like it's happening more often. I don't know if it is because I guess I would have been tuned in to previous governments and I guess a lot of the stuff that has been leaked is quite um kind of in the public interest more so the stuff regarding COVID obviously people are quite interested in that and then the mother and baby homes um that was something that kind of piqued public interest um I think it's interesting that people were so interested in the Brad Curry leak to the GP O'Toole is that how you say it um, because I feel like that was quite a, like kind of not complicated, but like it was kind of hard to follow. It was um, a very technical leak. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was quite technical in terms of the arrangements it had with the was it the IMO, <clears throat> and then the competing um, organization for the contract. Yeah, so it was interesting that people were so um, like that was followed a lot on social media, and there was a lot of public interest in that as well. So maybe there's a bit more of a public appetite for it at the moment. I feel like there's just, to an extent, there's fewer scandals. There's there's less like things going on currently in news because there is just fewer things ongoing with particularly the length of time we've been in lockdown. Um, if you kind of look at how we never really got to like a fully reopened society, yeah. there's just less news and therefore less scandal. And so people are jumping on this particularly because there was a personal aspect to that particular leak that it was leaked to a friend and not a co-worker or a journalist that it was someone he had a personal relationship with and I will say with the GP info leak to the village magazine the story it, it was quite technical but it very clearly painted Leo Varadkar out to be the villain in the story yeah like, I he agree was the one responsible for the under the table deal with his friend who happened to be a GP yeah, I think that's true. Like, you didn't really have to understand the technicalities of it. It was just like, he has done something bad. And that message definitely got across. There was something I noticed with that particular week. And I, Dylan, I'd like your opinion on this. But, like, I remember specifically noting at the time the images that were used in articles where Varadkar and uh, O'Toole appeared to get together that they did seem to be clubbing images, whereas like some newspapers seem to have more kind of just hanging out images, whereas there are some that seem to be almost, I wouldn't say that they were deliberate, but there was a choice made to use images at Pride or at gay bars in place of places where the background couldn't really be seen. Yeah, um, I don't think I saw the the clubbing type images but I definitely saw the ones at Pride and as soon as I saw them I was like oh god no not this again because 
there are so many legitimate reasons to criticize Leo Varadkar. You do not have to make it about him being a gay man. Like, it just, oh, it, and I, I don't know if, like, I, I want to give publications the benefit of the doubt and be like, okay, that just happened to be the image with the two of them together. Maybe it was an unconscious thing. But when I see it as, yeah, when I see it as a gay person, I'm like, oh God, this is um, an article where the person who's being accused of wrongdoing is openly gay and there are images that have pride flags in them and people will make that um, connection unconsciously or consciously that Leo Varadkar as a, an openly gay politician has done this bad thing and it, it just becomes like um, a, a, a way to sort of paint all you know gay politicians with the same brush. I will say like I clicked into a few of the articles I saw we used images like that and I was like when I said clubbing images I meant I didn't mean like they were at a rave it was just like like not imagine photo at a club <laughs> kind of situation um but yeah they didn't seem to be drawing any particular conclusion within or alluding to anything but like similar to yourself when I saw that as a gay person my first thought was oh god I really hope this wasn't chosen for a reason yeah um I think that publications need to be more conscious like I would assume that most decisions they make are not um, in bad faith but they need to think about how it could be construed as you said subconsciously or consciously by the public and like the responsibility they have when running these stories. Even if it happens to be like two separate pictures side by side um, because I, I know from personal experience trying to get an image that you can use can be a nightmare and a half and sometimes you just have to go with the images that are available to you. But um, I, I think that you can always work around it. That there, there's another way that you just have to be conscious of who your readers are and what they're gonna pick up on, um, whether consciously or consciously. Also, can I just make one other point on the Village Magazine article? Because I saw it a lot on social media after it broke and fair play to the Village Magazine for getting that scoop because it, it was, a really significant story that had a lot of um, impact because I know Leo did have to apologize during leaders questions the following week came out um, but when it was leaked because I think it was leaked at the weekend on a Saturday loads of people on social media were saying stuff like oh how come you don't see the likes of Orgy or the Irish Examiner or the Irish Times covering this like they're all in the government's pockets and I'm like I know that publications do not share sources that is a terrible way to be a newspaper you don't share your sources if you have a source you hold on to them and you keep their identity secret they're not going to share it with another publication that's why the village had it out first and that's why other publications led with the government response because that was the information that they could verify immediately and that was the most recent information as part of the story and i just i want people who read the news to know that because it grinds my gears <laughs> That's it, rant over, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's a very fair point to make um, about, like, I think because Irish journalism, there is like three or four sites that everyone turns to as like a reliable news source. There isn't a great deal of information on how to actually be news media literate. 
um, in, I, I think in the world in general, particularly in Ireland, there is this kind of assumption that you don't need to be news literate. You don't need to understand how the news is formed and created. Whereas especially when this past year, you absolutely do. Yeah, um, like to avoid kind of internal biases creeping in or to avoid letting newspapers run with their own internal biases and not be challenged. I think news literacy is something that we we should be teaching to a greater extent in the way that we teach like kind of liter like fiction literacy in English classes. I think there is to an extent space and scope for literacy of reliability of nonfiction sources as well in like, particularly in English, not just in when we're looking at historical sources um, where there is that kind of bit in junior cert history, um, but like looking at contemporary things as well. That's my little round over. But no, I think my takeaway from Grace's article was just how many leaks we've had in such a short amount of time and how significant they've been that they've had, that when they were leaked, they took over public conversation each time. Well, I guess my final thoughts would be we should see what will get leaked next um, and I guess see does the pattern continue and will it be anything interesting probably I think it's something that the public should be keeping an eye on even when um, life hopefully goes back to somewhat normal and we're all busy with our ordinary lives because it's interesting to think why are these leaks happening and where are they coming from Hey, and with that, we're wrapping up for the week. I'll be back next week with some more guests and some more news. Um, but yeah, uh, thank you uh, so much to Dylan O'Neill and Grace Donnellan for joining me this week. Again, you can find uh, you can find Dylan uh, online. Uh, just Google his name. A whole bunch of stuff will pop up. He's with a few publications. And uh, Grace can be found at her newsletter, which can be subscribed to at gracedonnellan.substack.com as well as at the University Observer, we have a new issue coming out uh, this coming Tuesday. So the day after this podcast goes live, we'll have more more content up for you. And uh, yeah, uh, I'll see you guys next week. Bye.